Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back. I hope you had a super happy Christmas and holiday season. Got to spend lots of time with family and friends and all the people that you love. I did. It was wonderful over here at our house. Super fun to spend a bunch of time with all my kids here. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, the author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. And I want to thank you, first of all, for sharing this podcast out with your friends and family and other important people in your life that you feel would benefit from it, from posting reviews and giving feedback. All of those things are super helpful. We had a banner first year last year and grew by leaps and bounds and super excited to dive in this year to some really awesome content. We get to start out the year with a mission-driven story about Richard Paul Evans and then we will start getting into content that I promised you a couple months ago on feminism and other really fascinating topics, beauty and truth and goodness and other themes that will help enrich our lives and make us better women and mothers. I'm really excited to talk to you about Richard Paul Evans years ago. I don't even know if I read The Christmas Box first or if I just read The Christmas Box Miracle. But the stories that he told about his experiences in writing and getting The Christmas Box published were really a defining moment for me. I remember specifically where I was, what I was doing when I was reading that book, and it had a huge impact on me, of course, If you've spent any time, if you've listened to or read The Mission Driven Life, then you know that I was in the middle of my own journey about mission, in the middle of working on my own education and raising my children and surrounded by this idea of mission. And I don't know if he says the word, he might say the word specifically mission in that book, but he just talks about purpose and being directed by God and all these miracles and divine experiences that he had in pushing that book out and getting it published, just really phenomenal. And we'll get to touch on that today. But I want to tell you about his background. He mentions in one of the books, I'm using predominantly The Christmas Box Miracle and The Four Doors today. The Four Doors is a book specifically about life mission that I found, I don't know, maybe six months or eight months after I wrote The Mission Driven Life that actually is all specifically about that you should live your mission. (laughs) Really cool and really validating to find that book and read it after I'd written The Mission Driven Life. Many of the things that he talks about in that book, I talked about in The Mission Driven Life and we talk about in detail in the Academy. So really cool connections. You know, when we search for truth, we find it and the truth correlates with the truths that other others find. So that was really cool experience. I want to start by telling you about his childhood because he, he was once being interviewed. He mentions this, this in the book and the reporter, whoever it was, made a comment about, well, you know, you've just had uh, such an easy life that he just kind of chuckled because he actually had a really hard life. And he's, he's really cool about it. Like, he's like, I know people have harder lives than I had, you know, but I'm no stranger to suffering and hardship for sure. And when I tell you about his childhood, you'll know exactly what he means when he says that. So he was born in 1962 in Salt Lake City, Utah. But when he was little, his family moved to Arcadia, California. 
he absolutely loved it there. He says it was almost like the perfect life. They had peacocks that roamed their neighborhood and they had lots of money. The dad, his dad had a good job and they had a beautiful home with a heated swimming pool and, and all these nice things. And they never worried about money, even though there's some, there was some other hardships that went on when he was younger too. But that part of his life, he has really fond memories of, and he makes the comment that that's one of the reasons why the name of Arcadia comes up in his book so often is because he has really fond memories of that time in his childhood. On the other hand, life was hard for him from the very beginning. When he was just a toddler, his mom gave birth to a, a stillborn child, a little girl that they named Sue. It was a time when stillbirths weren't understood as well as they are today. Her mom, his mom didn't know where or how to grieve. And from the time that he was very little, he was not really cared for by his parents. In fact, in, I think it's in the four doors, he talks about how he had a conversation with his dad at one point. And he was like, dad, who took care of me when I was a baby? And his dad's like, well, you know, we loved you. And, you know, I didn't have anything to do with the children, which is also somewhat telling, but his dad finally admitted that they had a young unwed teenage mother living in their home when he was born. And that because of his mom's extensive depression issues, which just grew worse as he grew older, this teenage girl was the one that took care of him. I mean, I guess like changing his diapers and I mean, I don't know, all of that kind of stuff. And so he uses the word kind of a abandonment issues because he never, I guess, felt really close to either of his parents and felt abandoned largely because of his mom's serious, serious depression issues. There wasn't a lot of really good medication or intervention programs. And I wouldn't be surprised if she had some postpartum depression issues as well. They had eight children in not a long period of time. I don't think the kids were too far apart. He was kind of at the latter end of the family. So it's several older siblings and his mom just as long as he can remember maybe not so much when he was little little but as he got older would stay in bed for days sometimes for weeks with these massive depressive bouts and anytime there was any kind of pretty decent crisis his mom would take to her bed so he tells the story about how one day she just finally broke he was 12 years old and he came home from a friend's house and the house was crowded with people. He asked what was going on. And his brother's girlfriend said to him, your mother's killed herself. Of course, he was shocked and he was like, mom's dead. And she said, yes, but she actually wasn't dead. She'd come close. She'd slid her wrist and been rushed to the hospital. She remained under psychiatric observation for some time before returning home. But then this really, oh, this really heartbreaking part of the story happened. So after she attempted suicide by slitting her wrists and she was returned home, anytime she was really struggling with her depression, she would go in the kitchen and get the electric knife sharpener and sharpen knives. And poor Richard, you can imagine him as 12, 13 year old boy hiding behind the couch, just crying and covering his ears against the sound of his mom sharpening the knives and all the implications of what that meant for her and for him and just just the pain of that. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore and he um, stole the knife sharpener, wrapped it in towels and hid it 
under the sink in the downstairs bathroom, he said. And then another time they came home from church and there was a hose extending from the exhaust pipe into the running car. The father is really angry and Richard asks him, what, what's going on? And, and his dad says, are you stupid? Your mother's trying to kill herself again. So those were the two suicide attempts that Richard knew about. He said, there could have been others that I didn't know about, but this suicide as a form of abandonment was attempted suicide and depression was, was huge for him. He had other really heartbreaking experiences with his mom, especially, and the kinds of things that she did, as you can imagine, as a severely depressed mother that were so painful for him. So in the middle of all this, now these stories about his mom being depressed happened when he was a little bit older. So this kind of idyllic childhood living, you know, being rich and all that kind of stuff crumbled when he was nine. His dad's career fell apart and they decided to move back to Utah. There were a series of a couple moves, but they landed in the grandma's abandoned home on some property that was full of rats and really quite disgusting. And the dad was really depressed and scrambling to try to provide for all these people. And the mom took it horribly and got worse, you know, more and more depressed. And then they had these series of financial setbacks they finally got on their feet and the dad was doing better again and doing construction. And he said, okay, we're going to go build our dream house now. And I think he said it was like a year or so that they worked on building this house. I mean, physically doing a lot of the labor with all these sons that he had. And just when they, I think they got moved in or were about to anyway, they weren't there long. I think the mom said, we're going to, I'm going to die in this home. But within a very short period of time, the father fell through a floor or a roof and shattered his legs and couldn't work and everything unraveled financially again, which sent the mom back into a tailspin again. And so just, just this tragic, really sad childhood that he was, you know, just kind of trying to survive emotionally. He got into fist fights. They lived in a bad part of town. Uh, really, really hard stuff. So in the midst of all this, he had this kind of miraculous experience with his grandfather, who was a really spiritual man. He and his brother, when they went to the grandma's property, they used to explore outside a lot because there were a lot of trees and land and things. And so they would climb trees all the time. So they're climbing this tree and his brother is climbing ahead of him. And he suddenly hears a loud buzz split the air and he watches his brother fall in front of him and hit the ground. And so he quickly shimmies down the tree and runs screaming to the house for his mother. His brother is laying there motionless, motionless on the ground and his skin is black, his eyes are closed. They kind of both think he's probably dead. But then luckily this brother, Van, opens his eyes and <laughs> asks, am I really dead? <laughs> Which is heartbreaking. Anyway, most of the damage was done where he had grabbed the electrical line with his hand and it really should have killed him. But the doctors thought that because that it probably did kill him. But then when he fell to the ground and hit the ground that hard, that it probably jump started his heart back up and the electrical line had burnt through the flesh and melted his into his fingers, erasing his fingers, 
his fingerprints and it had blown out the soles of his shoes and all this all this crazy stuff. And so the next day his grandfather came over and gave the brother a blessing and told him that he would recover completely. And so a few weeks later, when they went back to the doctor and took the bandages off his hand, his hand was perfect. And the doctor said, there's a force at work here I don't understand. So that was when he was maybe 10 or 11. And by the time he was 12, when he was 12, he had that tragic experience of his mom attempting suicide. But he also had a really beautiful experience when his grandfather gave him a blessing. And in this blessing, he told him some really beautiful things about his life. But the thing uh, that really stood out to Richard was his grandfather said, you will walk with the royalty of this earth and be known as one who loves God. And that actually kind of gave him some hope that maybe he would someday pull out of this difficult home life situation that he was living in and make something of himself and, and do cool stuff in life, really. So it gave him some hope. Now, in the meantime, he also suffered at the hands of some of his older brothers who thought it was a lot of fun to torture their younger brothers. And I, I, I can't remember all the crazy stories of the things that they did. They had him lay down on the ground and they would jump motorcycles over them or uh, just, you know, he calls it torture. He really was scared of his older brothers and they did some things that that really, I, I don't know that the brothers understood at the time just exactly how bad it was for the younger brothers. But that was really difficult. Another thing that was difficult was that he went years and years. In fact, I think he was in his 40s when he was diagnosed with, diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome. And so that made him have tics and talk strangely and made him kind of stand out and be different than the other kids, which meant things could get hard at school. So anyway, just lots and lots of hard stuff in his childhood. I'm sure there are many happy memories in there. And he does go on to mention that his mom wanted him to share her story in hopes that it would help other people and that she's since pulled out of that major depression and is able to lead a much more normal life and love her family as she had always wanted to. But that meant that Richard's childhood was, was a very difficult and painful one. So as he got older... He did some, some really cool stuff. He wanted to write for the high school paper, and but they turned him down. So he decided that he would try to be the cartoonist. And he was then, and the editor of the paper was like, okay, you can do cartoons for us. But as usually happens in high school journalism classes, many of the kids dropped off and weren't doing uh, what they were supposed to do. And so eventually that school year, he became the feature editor in the school newspaper. And so this was kind of, you know, he was starting to get his feet wet wet with writing. And the next probably 10 years of his life, it's really fascinating to read about it because there's so much self-discovery that goes on. He tries all kinds of different types of things. And there seem to me, kind of as an outsider looking in, to be two dominant themes that he was practicing his skills at writing and at marketing. That those were kind of the two dominant, he, he wrote a lot of ads and do a lot of, did a lot of advertising. And I do think that his marketing skills, how great he became at marketing, played a key role in his ability to self-publish so successfully. 
And so the marriage of those two strong gifts that he had and that 10 years that he kind of spent from high school into his late 20s developing those gifts helped him to bring the Christmas box out into the open and to get a self-publishing deal. Another example of the kinds of things that he was trying and, and doing were when he worked at a place called Tuxmania and he realized that there were a bunch of tuxedos in the basement that were just being given away and they were in good condition. They had just been rented out enough that they were just a tiny bit worn and he had this brilliant idea of reselling them. He convinced the bosses and he got the other um, employees behind him and he pulled off this incredible sale that brought in several thousand dollars for all of them. It was just this brilliant marketing scheme and was successful. So that was super cool. He also decided to serve a mission for his church in Taiwan and learned a bunch of incredible things there and gave that service to God. Now, I haven't mentioned yet, which I usually do when I do these mission-driven stories, how he's lived the seven laws of life mission. And I'm telling you, I mean, all the mission-driven stories I share and relate, these individuals were living all these laws. But Richard Paul Evans really, especially in these two books, you can see these laws being lived over and over and over again. In fact, as I went back through the books and found the page numbers that I had marked for different laws that he had lived, there were six to 12 at least moments or experiences or examples of times when he had lived each of the seven laws. So it was really fascinating to see that happen. And I'm going to give you some quotes at the end. Some of my favorite quotes of his from these books about his commitment to these seven laws. But I will tell you, his love for God, it shines throughout. I mean, it's probably the most dominant trait that you see magnified in these books. It's clear that he makes God a high priority, that he definitely has a divine center in his life, that he is, he constantly is praying over his decisions and trying to see what God would have him do. And there's some cool stories I'm going to tell you about times when it really didn't make any logical sense what he really believed God was telling him to do, but he went on faith and did it anyway. And it just had these amazing results. And it is true that throughout the world now, he is known as one who loves God. That, that blessing from his grandfather did in fact come true. And so he goes on this mission. He comes home. He finds his wife, Carrie. He meets and marries her. And they really love each other. And then he's got this new wife to provide for. And he kind of tries school. He does some school, but he doesn't. He doesn't finish. I don't know if he ever, I don't remember him ever saying he finished a full bachelor's degree. Maybe he did, but he couldn't get a job for a while and it was really starting to worry him. And, and some months or maybe even a year or two before he put his name in for a political internship. He said that he'd expressed interest in that. And so they called him up and asked him if he'd like to work on a campaign. He worked so hard and loved it so much, he just fell in love with it, that he was promoted to campaign field coordinator. He did that. He really loved it. He ended up helping with a couple other campaigns and being really good at it and loving it. And when that was over, he decided he was going to do another dream of his, and that was to start his own paper, and he called it The Collegiate. I think it lasted a year, year and a half, something like that. And again, it was writing and marketing, writing and marketing. And, and it was a really great experience in learning to put that kind of stuff together and practicing 
um, a lot of different skills, developing those skills. And in the meantime, his first daughter is born. Her name was Jenna. And he shares this really beautiful experience where he talks about not really knowing if he was ready to be a dad. But then he ran into a friend who he'd never considered as someone who would even be a dad or want to be a dad or be a good dad. And he told Richard, you know, you have no idea what you're missing. Having children is the greatest thing out there. And he started thinking about that and it really changed his heart. And he said, suddenly I felt a strange new feeling I would best describe as a curious strain of homesickness. I felt an intense longing for a child. Now, Carrie had been begging him to have kids. He had really resisted, but now he was ready. And so she was like, okay, yeah, I guess I'm ready too. And they got pregnant and had a baby like 10 months later. So that was really sweet. He fell in love with fatherhood and he tells some sweet experiences with fatherhood where he was busy, busy, busy in these other businesses that he started up and gone a lot. And one night he went into his daughter's room after she was asleep because he wasn't seeing her a lot because he was gone so much. And um, as he opened the door, he said he heard a distinct voice come to his mind that said, you're trading diamonds for stones. You have one childhood with your daughter. When it's gone, it's gone for all eternity. At the, as the message sunk in, I was suddenly filled with tremendous grief. I knelt at the side of Jenna's bed and wept. I made her a promise I would be there for her. And that happened when um, the collegiate failed and he took a job as a business manager and worked really heavily for two years in advertising. And then he had decided to go out on his own and start his own advertising firm. And so he was working long, long, long hours. And it was really, really tough business. And he was working six days a week, usually coming home after she was in bed. It was really tough. On the other hand, he had debts and bills to pay. And so he was trying to find this balance between living this principle of putting his family first and being there for him. Now, of course, he was putting them first by providing for them, but he wanted to spend more time with them. And so he was trying to find ways to do that. In the midst of all of this, their second daughter is born, Alice and Danica. At that point, he tries one more business in clay animation. <laughs> and he's just not even really sure why he tried this business, but it didn't last long. And then he finally kind of threw his arms up in the air. He tried two or three businesses by this time. None of them had gone really well. He had a whole mountain of debt and he didn't know what to do next. And he was feeling pretty discouraged and not knowing what to do. And he closed down his business. And right about that time, he was given the opportunity to help on another campaign. The guy that he had been in business with before had been awarded this campaign bid to run someone's campaign. And even though their candidate lost, they made a name for themselves because they had run it so well and he had learned even more about the campaign business. And so that helped him to pay off, of it, pay off his debts and get some money in his pocket. And he was doing a little bit better. And then because of that campaign, when Robert Bennett decided to run for the US Senate, he helped run that campaign. And it turned out to be at that point in time was the most expensive campaign that had ever happened in Utah. They spent way more money on, on it. And so he did that for several months. And when it was all over, he had all of his debts paid off and he had some money in the bank. 
In the meantime, he had decided to run for office himself, but he'd lost. And so here he is, not really sure he wants to be in business for himself again, but he's really entrepreneurial at heart. And he has some money in the bank and a little bit of time on his hands because he just ran for the state legislature. I mean, he just ran for office and lost. So he decides to write a book and the Christmas box is born. Now he shares these beautiful experiences about how this book was given to him by God. So one night, the climax of the book comes to his mind and he's writing this all down. And he feels that this sister who was stillborn, he feels that her spirit is in the room telling him to dedicate the book to her and that he was given this story to help his mother heal from her loss. So it's this beautiful spiritual experience in the creation of this book. And he knew that it had an important message and an important meaning. But he had set out to write a book for his daughters. And that's all he thought he was doing was writing a book for his daughters. But it was almost Christmas. They had this tradition in their family where everyone gave everybody else. They did a little presentation and exchanged gifts. And he decided he'd print 20 copies of his book. He'd give it to his family members. That would be his Christmas gift to them. And that would be it. He would be a real author because he had published 20 copies of the book that he had written. And he had, in fact, he had this really sweet experience with his wife when he handed her the book and she read it in one sitting and, and, and cried at the end and thought it was just a, a beautiful book. Well, then that more of that was to come more and more and more and more of that. And I kind of just want to use this podcast as a teaser to get you to go get these books and read these experiences for yourself because I couldn't begin to share in the beautiful language that he uses all of the profound experiences that he had in pushing this book out because what started happening was people started reaching out to him and telling him that their book had changed his life or that it had brought them to tears or that it was really beautiful or that they really loved it. And people started sharing out the 20 copies that he had had printed. And then he got a call from a bookstore who had requests for the book and he had not done anything but print 20 copies. And so it's just incredible how, how it all went down. And so he decides to kind of put his other career options on hold and see how far he could get this book and see how much he could push it. And it was, it was grueling. It was time consuming. He was on the road a lot. He had to, he went to book fairs and he tried to meet important people in the book industry. And he went from store to store and tried to get it in all the stores. And he did countless book signings and just incredible experiences. But I want to share you, share with you two of my favorite experiences from, because they have to do with his his experience as a mission-driven individual with key choices that he made that show his commitment to the mission path. Now, he already had developed a deep love for God. He'd already sacrificed part of his life and time to serve a mission for God. He talks frequently about praying and about having revelation, having spiritual insights, hearing, um, you know, voices and filling spirits and just profound spiritual experiences. So clearly law one was totally in place in his life. He totally had a divine center and was devoted to God. He also was on the self-discovery path. 
very much entrenched in love of self as he tried out. Now, kudos to his wife for letting him try all these things. Honestly, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of on the edge, taking lots of risks those first 10 years or so that they were married. And she allowed him to do that. But every opportunity seemed like a failure, but led to his eventual success because of all the things that he learned about himself and all the connections that he made and opportunities. I mean, later down the road, when he was really taking big risks, the second year he was trying to promote his book full time, it was Bennett who helped secure a loan for him to print half a million copies of the book before Christmas. And so those connections, those experiences, that self-discovery was critical for him. But he also talks a lot, especially in the four doors, when he talks about life mission, he talks about self-management and it's clear that he has learned to overcome very hard things. He talks about our tendency toward victimhood, which of course anyone in the MDM Academy knows we talk extensively about that and how to be a creator. Instead, he talks about the importance of forgiveness. He even mentions the Alcoholics Anonymous book, which was really dear to my heart because of course I talk about it on the podcast in the Academy. I have a whole podcast on it. And so that was really um, cool to see those, to make those connections, but definitely very much living those principles. He lived a moderate lifestyle and he definitely focused on a lot of self-management and a lot of self-discovery. And, you know, there's several places. He actually uses the word principle a lot in his book, especially in the four doors. It's clear that he believes in principles. It's clear that he believes that they're universal. It's clear that he believes that we should discover and live them, that they will create a solid foundation for our lives. He talks about principles. He teaches them as principles. And so it's clear that he has had a love of truth. He's, he's been on a path to understand principles, to discover them and to live them and to have them be effectual in his life. And he teaches from a principled perspective. He also, like when he, you know, made a promise to his daughter to put her first, he was really striving to live, build a principle-centered home. And so law three was definitely in place. And this fourth law of love of humanity becoming a lifelong learner and learning from the greats. He actually, especially in the four doors, he talks about the greats a lot. And every time he recommends books, they're classics. And in fact, books that I've read and absolutely loved, they're great books. You know, he talks about Shakespeare multiple times and, and older novels. And he mentions how he spent a decade studying 200 great men and women from history to discover how they had become great. I mean, if you don't call that being a lifelong learner and learning from the greats, like Love of Humanity teaches to do, I don't know what. I mean, just incredible. And then, of course, that love of humanity comes out in a couple of these stories I want to tell you about his path. So I mentioned a minute ago that I want to tell you some of my favorite stories from his experiences as a mission-driven individual in getting out the Christmas box, because that was really the foundation of his career as an author. And then he went on to write, you know, dozens and dozens of books and have lots of success. But I want to make the point here before I tell these experiences that he was already a very mission driven individual, his love of God, his love of self, his love of truth and his love of humanity were already in place when he set out on this path, he had a good foundation and he talks about returning to that foundation and strengthening it of recommitting himself to God and God's path and obedience to what God had inspired him to do. 
learning even more, becoming an even better person, learning more about humanity. He even mentions studying from the multiple world religions and from their sacred texts. So this is really a man that exemplifies what we want to be. And then, of course, if you dive into these books, especially the Christmas box miracle, you'll see laws five and six all throughout when he hears the call and he knows that this is what God wants him to do. I mean, feeling your sister's presence and knowing the book should be dedicated to her and it's it's meant to heal your mother and then seeing it heals people's lives from the very beginning. How could you question that this was God's path for you? And he pushes through many, many obstacles. He continues his um, to to be valiant and true to what he knows he's supposed to do. And then, of course, he courageously executes. I mean, you see that he puts everything on the line. He risks <laughs> really his his own personal finances are in the balance. He spends two years doing it full time, puts his career on the line as well, and pushes through some really, really, really hard moments. And of course, he definitely had a message that he was sharing. His books are replete with the message that we all have a mission from God, that we ought to find and fulfill that. That's the only way to live. And he shares God love, God's love with everyone. I mean, the Christmas box is all about God's love. And he talks about it when he speaks all, all over the world. He shares this message of God's love and of life mission everywhere he goes, living that law six, principle three, just with, with valor and, and passion. So the first experience I want to share with you happened pretty far into his self-promotion of his book. He was well over a year and a half in. He'd been at this for a long time. I mean, book signings with, he'd have miraculous experiences almost every signing. At least one person would say they felt drawn there or they heard a voice or cool, incredible experiences with God showing him, you're on the right path. You're on the right path. This is going to work. And so he's going on faith. In fact, he makes the comment that looking back, he can't believe how much faith he had, but he was depending, it was going to be the second Christmas he had spent, he put all his finances on the line to print half a million books that he wanted to get out by Christmas. And he was depending on a couple things. He had publicists working for him and he had a bookseller and all this kind of stuff. And they were supposed to have a spot in People Magazine and it fell through and he was supposed to have a radio or a TV spot. And that also fell through. And then he went to this book signing and they didn't even know he was coming. So this all happened like within a 24, 48 hour time period. And he was just incredibly discouraged. And he goes back out to his car and he says bitterly, God, you've given me just enough rope to hang myself. So he's pretty angry. He knows that without the People magazine and without the TV spot and with these book signings, you know, not coming together, there's no way he's going to even begin to get rid of all these books and they're going to sit in a warehouse and he's going to be carrying all this debt and he's going to have to totally start over. But he's felt all, he's had all these spiritual experiences all the way along and he's felt like he was on the right path and he was doing what God wanted him to do and he'd taken all these risks like, like Max Lucado says, take big risks for God. You know, he had done that. And he says, what happened next, I cannot adequately describe. Instantly, a powerful external force shaped words in my mind. Why did you write this book? It asked. I didn't answer. Did you do it for the money? I thought for a moment. 
I wrote the book for my daughters. I wasn't even going to publish it. It was never about money, but now I'm broke. Did you do it for your pride? This was more difficult to answer. Not at first, I I said. I, I thought this book was helping people, but I don't like looking like a fool. Do you believe that this book was given to you? He felt like this voice was asking him. Yes, I replied. And then the voice said, then I will do with this book as I will. Reality sunk in. I realized my quest was really over and I had lost. I would pay dearly for dreaming, yet some vestige of faith and trust in God, no doubt planted and nurtured by my parents in my youth, spoke back to that voice what might be the most difficult words in any language to speak, thy will be done. Absolutely love this moment. And and I'm going to give you a couple beautiful quotes where he talks about how this is where the real battles won. In these moments of, of doubt and discouragement, not when you're up on stage, but when you turn your will over to God. And of course, I talk about that in the Mission Driven Life. We spend a lot of time on that in the, in the Mission Driven Mom Academy, because that is the crux of it. That is really where it's at. And again, to her credit, his wife is incredible. I'm telling you, their family was just, oh, he goes home. He's so discouraged and he comes in the bedroom late at night and he tells her that People Magazine isn't going to go through and that they're going to have a lot of debt for a long time. And the room just sits silent like that for a moment. And then his wife answers back, but think of all the good you've done. What an incredible wife. And she's a big reason why he was able to do what he did. So then this whirlwind begins and everything comes together and I'm not going to give you the climax of the story so that you'll go get it and read it yourself, (laughs) but beautiful things happen and he gets the, um, he gets the book deal, the $4 million book deal and becomes the most successful self-published author in history. And the book goes out and has all these profound influences and there's beautiful stories about how the angel came into being and people go, there's like over a hundred Christmas box angels all over the world now where people can go and grieve their lost children. Just so many beautiful things came out of it. But this last little um, story I want to tell you happened after he signed the deal and they got the money and they go to meet with this financial expert. And he tells them some pretty discouraging stuff about what it's like when you're rich and how your kids are a total mess and how it's all going to come down. And they walk out of there pretty upset and frustrated and they don't really know what to do. So they're sitting there in the car and he says, not exactly what I expected. Carrie looked at me seriously. Maybe we should just give the money back. This led to a lively discussion. And by the time we left the parking lot, we had come to the conclusion that our windfall was not inherently bad or good. What mattered was how we chose to use it. We decided that we would not rush out and buy new cars and toys. We would move gradually and we would teach our children how to use money by helping others. We decided to start a foundation. So I love this so much because it shows the level of character that he already had, that they had as a couple and as a family. They show, it shows, demonstrates that they were really striving to build a principle centered home. And you know, these, 
principles that they just mentioned here about not buying the toys and about doing things gradually show their commitment to principles and their decision to start a foundation as one of the very first things they did with their newfound wealth shows their love of humanity. It was a foundation for abused and neglected children. They were able to hire his father to run it and it's helped, I don't know, countless children that are abused and neglected and he funds it with the sale of his children's books. So let me read you a few of my favorite quotes by Richard Paul Evans that are just nourishment to the soul. We'll put them up on the podcast page and put some out in the Facebook group. But he's an incredible man who demonstrates beautifully the seven laws of life mission. And if you'll get his books and read them, they will be another companion to the mission-driven life and to the things that you're working on. They'll buoy up your faith and give you added direction and strength. He said, I believe in God. I believe in an all-loving, purposeful God who's willing to give us hard things so we might spiritually progress. He also said, Few things promise more excitement and joy than learning, self-discovery, and self-improvement. Here's another one. The power of believing in a personal mission is a principle that had an impact on my own life and has led me to achieve things that I never would have dreamed possible. My personal belief in a divine life mission has brought me hope, understanding, and meaning throughout my life. As a believer in divine intervention, I also believe that we are sometimes given specific direction to fulfill our missions. Implicit in our belief in a divine life mission is the importance of listening to those internal voices that may direct us for good. The first step in finding our life purpose is to believe in life purpose. The greatest impediment to our personal freedom is not created by government regulation, but resides within our own heads. It is my experience that the most insidious of limitations are psychological in nature. Three of the most common of these psychological cages are paradigm, victimhood, and fear. Fame and greatness are not the same thing. There are great people in this world, people of great accomplishment and service to humanity who are not famous. In most cases, true greatness is a silent and lonely affair. To be of value to others is a far greater ambition than the vain hope for the world's fleeting applause and fickle admiration. Turning our lives over to a higher power is perhaps the most sure way to discover the divinity of our own lives. I believe that Preceding the personal and spiritual victory, there must be a moment of adversity, a literal trial of spirit. These dark times, when many fall with despair, are the real moments of triumph. Remembering that each noble cause must be preceded by a struggle enables us to better walk with courage and faith. And this last one is awesome. I believe the most important thing we can learn in our divine educational process on earth is how to love. To love God and to love others. They are the same thing, really. We cannot love God without loving his children. Neither can we love God without serving his children. So, so true. Thanks to Richard Paul Evans for being an inspiration and a mentor to me and to so many others. Thanks so much for joining me for this inspiring mission-driven story. If you haven't listened to The Mission Driven Life, you can head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and opt in for an audio version of that book and listen and learn these seven laws for yourself and apply them in your own home and family. And if you've not joined our Facebook group at The Mission Driven Mom Mastermind, we'd love to get to know you there. 
Thanks again for listening and sharing out these podcasts and I'll see you next time.